Hey everybody, it's Lon Seidman. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up, and we've got a whole bunch of topics to discuss today. You can see them all here on screen. We have a video index in the description, so now let's get to it. Now before we begin, I want to thank our newest supporters here on the channel. They include Mark Williams, Lich Demeter, Harold Gaskill, and No Need. And then during the last wrap-up we did about two weeks ago, uh, we had Eric Brunhammer and Carol Chermazinski contribute via Super Chat. I want to thank everyone for their generous contributions to the channel this week, along with everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis. And of course, I also appreciate those of you who watch on an ongoing basis too, because all of those things equal channel growth. So let's take a look now at the Week in Review. On the Extras channel, we unboxed a really neat USB-C hub that has built-in storage from Minix. We'll be having a full review of this a little later this week on the channel. This will be uh, quite an involved review because we got a lot of different things to test it on, so stay tuned for that. It'll be coming up in the next couple of days. And then we also had just a little mini-review of this self-generating power doorbell that I got in through the Amazon Vine program. It's a wireless doorbell, but the button does not require batteries. It generates enough power to transmit a signal when you push the button, and it actually works pretty well, and I show how I'm using it with my new Blink camera on the front door. Pretty neat stuff there. And then on the main channel, we took a look at the HP Sprocket Studio. This is a new photo printer from HP in their Sprocket family, uh, but it uses a very different print technology versus the smaller Sprockets that use a thermal printer. Uh, This uses dye sublimation technology, which looks a lot better. Uh, Not as good as a six-color inkjet or something, but close, and I was pleased with its output. You can see the full review in the master playlist down below. We also took a look at the WD My Passport Go. This is an entry-level portable solid-state drive from WD. I was not pleased with the write performance on it, though, especially given that it's only about $10 less than higher-performing drives in WD's lineup, so you can check out the full review to see if this will work for you or not. I do like the fact that it has an integrated cable, but again, the performance wasn't quite there for me. And then we also took a look at the Raspberry Pi 4 before I headed off for my IFA trip, and that video has done quite well. There's a lot of potential here with the Raspberry Pi 4 that hasn't yet been realized because I think a lot of people were surprised by the speed in which this new piece of hardware came out. And it is very different than prior editions of the Pi, meaning that your cases and all the other accessories you might have uh, may not work with the new one. Uh, You can see that full review linked down below in the master playlist, and I have no doubt we'll be coming back to the Pi 4 at some point in the near future. Now, hopefully the YouTube algorithm let you know that we were in Berlin, Germany for IFA 2019 last week. IFA is one of Europe's largest consumer electronics shows. Uh, It's not as big as CES is in Las Vegas each year, but this one is up there in size, and we got to see a lot of cool stuff including things that you don't typically see at the U.S. shows because these are products being sold in the European market. Uh, So it was a great opportunity to visit a new place that I hadn't been to before and, of course, get uh, some more dispatch videos produced here on the channel, which I know a lot of you like. We did three of them from IFA, and I want to thank Lenovo for their sponsorship of our visit there. Uh, This whole thing came together in about three weeks or so, and it was a great opportunity for us here on the channel, and hopefully you all enjoyed the coverage. I did do a little sightseeing while I was there, and I want to thank a viewer, WDTVCon, uh, for having a one-person meetup with me as we went around the city. So Khan met up with me, and we uh, got to see a lot of the historic sites around town and had a great German dinner as well. 
Uh, Khan is about my age. She grew up in Berlin. And when I was 13, watching the wall coming down on TV, he was there living it in person. He lived on the West Berlin side, uh, but they would often go to the wall and look over and see if they could see what was going on on the other side of the wall. And then one day, uh, the whole thing just came down and Germany was reunited again. So we went and visited some of the sites from that period of time. Uh, This is Checkpoint Charlie. This was where the divider was between East and West Berlin. Uh, They left the little checkpoint up here, but everything else around it has changed considerably. You can see the McDonald's right next to it on one side and then the KFC on the other. Uh, But there's a lot of remnants of the Berlin Wall and the Cold War. Uh, We went to the Checkpoint Charlie Museum that uh, commemorated the folks who escaped East Berlin, some in very innovative ways, including gliders and little ultralights that were manufactured from uh, motorcycle engines. They had one father who rigged up a pulley system to get his child over the wall because they had mined portions of the wall to prevent people from escaping. Uh, Quite a remarkable museum if you can ever get down to check it out. And what they have done is left portions of the wall up in their original locations. And then throughout Berlin, you'll see this line on the pavement and on the sidewalks that delineates where the wall once was because they want people to remember what happens when things get too divisive. Uh, And it's amazing just to see this place that I watched on TV as a kid as history took, took place Uh, and then watch people just walk across the border there without really thinking about it anymore. Uh, It wasn't all that long ago, but uh, Germany really has unified, and it's just an amazing place to visit. Uh, So many great museums that I didn't get a chance to see, Uh, so much to do, great food, great people. It was just a wonderful visit, and I hope to get back there again in the future and do a little bit more sightseeing uh, when I don't have a show to go and cover. So great trip. Again, thanks to Lenovo, thanks to Khan. And thanks to all of you for watching. And here's a funny little thing that happened to me the other night. So my wife and I went out for dinner for her birthday. And as I was driving home in Connecticut here, uh, I saw a fireball in the sky. It was a meteor that was breaking up in the upper atmosphere. And my dashboard camera there picked it up. And you wouldn't think this was all that crazy of a video. But right after I put it up on Twitter to share with my Twitter followers... I got a ton of tweets from TV stations, no less than five or six of them here. So uh, two of my Connecticut stations here asked to use the footage. And then uh, PIX11 out of New York, along with ABC7 and CBS2, all grabbed the footage. And one agency out of Japan. Uh, It was just kind of fun to see how quickly these news producers get on you for this stuff. I guess that meteor I saw in Connecticut was also seen in New York City that night. And it's remarkable how bright it was because it was also a full moon that evening. It was a full moon on Friday the 13th of all things. uh, And it was pretty crazy. So it was just fun to see how fast this footage can get around. And apparently I was all over the news here in Connecticut and in New York, or at least my dashboard camera was. Fun stuff. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. The first is a great deal on the Fire TV Stick 4K here in the U.S., They dropped the price of it from $50, which was a great price already, to $34.99 for a couple of days. So if you've been thinking about getting one of these, jump on it now. Uh, These are actually a pretty decently performing device, and it supports uh, HDR and now YouTube, of course. So definitely check one out if you are in need of something, because it is a good deal. And of course, we got our affiliate link there as well, so you can help the channel at the same time. And Blackmagic this week announced a new four-input video switcher. That costs only $295. It's almost the price of maybe one or two capture cards that you might get normally. And what's nice about this is that you've got a full-blown switcher, 
at an affordable price in a self-contained package. It will also stream out to popular streaming services through its Ethernet port here. Uh, This is coming out in November. I'll definitely be getting one of these to check it out uh, because I'm often finding myself going to an event or something and not wanting to drag all this equipment with me. Uh, What's nice is that you can have all of your inputs in a single device that will also stream and do all of the switching. It doesn't have a recording function built in, unfortunately, but you can hook up an external recorder to its HDMI output. They also have a USB output that will act as a webcam. So if you've got some software that only likes web cameras, it will emulate that USB web camera and provide a video source to that. So this is going to be something to keep an eye on. Uh, When it is released in November, I will definitely buy one and review one uh, because it's going to be a very, very useful tool for on-the-go production. And I think it also might be useful for people that are starting their own YouTube channels because you can really do a lot of what I do with a very simple switcher here and cut down on a lot of your editing time as a result. And it looks like there might be some issues with Intel's Apollo Lake processors And there's been a lot of crazy back and forth on this product notice from Intel. Uh, So initially, they issued a notice that was very similar to one that was released about a year ago in relation to older Atom processors. Uh, Those older Atom chips over extended periods of time were failing, and they were failing earlier than their specs said they should. And as a result, Intel had to put up a fund to help replace those chips that are very much widespread out in the marketplace, certainly with older network-attached storage devices and other embedded computers. And initially, it looked like the Apollo Lake chips were suffering from the very same problem, and Intel said as much, and then Intel walked it back. Uh, Tom's hardware here is a great back-and-forth with Intel as to exactly what the problem is here, but it appears as though Intel's been able to mitigate the issue on the affected Apollo Lake chips with a firmware update, and they're saying that all of the B1 stepping processors, the 3350, the 3355, the 3455, and the N4200 are all going to be okay, uh, provided those firmware updates get issued out. But they are recommending people look at a new design of that chip called the F1, and those will uh, meet longer-term Uh, reliability standards. So it's not as bad, it seems, as the other issue. We'll have to see what happens as these chips age and whether or not they develop this problem. Uh, But something to keep in mind if you have a network-attached storage device or a mini PC that you're relying on running with one of these processors, you might want to get in touch with your computer manufacturer to make sure there's nothing to be concerned about. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Facebook settled a case with the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S. for $2 billion dollars. It looks like YouTube also just settled a case with the Federal Trade Commission to the tune of $150 million. Uh, This was one of those Friday night news dumps that they hope nobody would really pick up on, but the implications of this are pretty significant. And let's take a look at what some of those implications are. Uh, You can read about the settlement here on Bloomberg. Uh, What's important, though, is what YouTube posted on their supporter pages And what's going to happen here is that they're going to stop serving personalized ads that are targeted to specific users for people watching YouTube who are under the age of 13. And with that, a lot of engagement is going away, including likes, dislikes, and commenting. I believe YouTube has disabled comments on kid content already, uh, but now it is permanent. Uh, Likes and dislikes, though, that's a new thing, and there's some degree of subscription changes that are happening here as well. And this is going to impact a lot of channels that are making kid-focused content, 
because those targeted ads are a lot more profitable because they could target ads to maybe my daughter watching something about her LOL surprise dolls or something. She could get an ad to, you know, catered to her interests, which has a lot more value. Uh, now the advertising has to be a lot more generalized and they can't focus on specific users any longer. Uh, so this will undoubtedly have a financial impact to channels. Uh, the other big thing that's important for people to note is that it's going to be on not only YouTube, but the creators themselves to indicate that they are targeting this video for kids under the age of 13. And if you're doing something like a toy review, even if you're doing that toy review focused on parents, the fact that it's a toy for kids under the age of 13 is something that will probably get swept up in this. And YouTube is going to have an algorithm looking for this kind of stuff. And obviously, if you have a toy that is marketed for kids under the age of 13, it's going to get wrapped up in that whether you check the box or not. But it looks like the FTC is going to be keeping an eye on YouTube creators to make sure that they are checking the box. And if they don't, uh, they might be liable as well in future FTC actions. And the FTC said as much in a press conference here according to this TechCrunch article. This has wide-reaching implications here. And I could see a lot of people's videos getting swept up in this. So, for example, maybe a year or two ago, I looked at a kind of a neat little uh, car toy uh, that was using apps and other things. It kind of fell in with the content that I typically do here. That video could get designated as a kid video, even though the target audience wasn't directed to kids. Uh, We're seeing a lot of art channels and a lot of family blogging channels now uh, looking to Uh, not focus on younger kids any longer. So in the case of some of these how-to and arts and crafts kind of channels, they're going to be doing things for ages 13 and up so that they're not falling under this uh, new restriction that might limit their revenue. So I think we're going to see a large amount of kid-focused content likely leaving the platform uh, because it may not be as profitable anymore. And this is a big change that's going to affect a lot of people's livelihoods and a lot of content may not make it over to the YouTube Kids uh, app until it's been really thoroughly vetted by uh, the YouTube censors, if you will. So there's a lot of changes that are coming out of this uh, for independent creators, not all of them good. And my concern would be down the road if we saw increased regulation on people of all ages, what would that do to independent content creation on the platform? Uh, Very troubling for us creators, especially when you see the impact of something like this. And I do agree it's important that Uh, Children's privacy is respected, but we do have to look at this as a warning sign as to what could happen if some of the actions to regulate this industry go a little too far, and that could really impact a lot of voices on the internet as a result. So we have to keep an eye on this and see what develops out of it, but in the meantime, if you are doing kids' content, you need to read up on this immediately because this will dramatically impact how you do business. And on a lighter note, I found this story in The Hustle that was published back in June that I think... Uh, brings a dose of reality to all of our AI-driven utopian visions of an automated future. Uh, These little Kiwi bots here deliver food to people on the UC Berkeley campus. I guess they bring food to people on campus and then people just outside of campus. But when you dig deeper into how these things work, they are far from autonomous. There are people in Colombia who are making about $2 an hour who are actually controlling the robots. Apparently, They have to put in the routes themselves and then send the robots off, and then they monitor the robots remotely from Columbia to make sure they're going to where they're supposed to go. Uh, So they're not quite uh, autonomous in that regard. And then apparently the way these things work is that they don't travel all that far, maybe a couple of hundred yards at most. And what happens is, is that the food delivery people 
bring the food to a central location. Somebody at that location takes the food out and puts it into each robot, and then they get sent on their way. So there's still just a ton of human intervention here to do what is supposedly an autonomous function. So I don't think we're quite there yet on all of this autonomous delivery here. And this KiwiBot story is a great example of that. You can read more at the Hustle article linked on screen. Now, you've probably heard about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And if you haven't, this is a new theme park attraction, Star Wars themed, of course, that is now at Disneyland in California and Disney World in Orlando. They spent a fortune on this to immerse visitors in the Star Wars universe, including the ability to interact with different characters who will know what you've been doing in different parts of the park. Really fun, a lot of neat YouTube videos about it already. Uh, But Gizmodo had an article last week that reminded everyone that Star Trek did this first. They had something at the Las Vegas Hilton called Star Trek The Experience, and I went to it about 20 years ago. It was the most amazing thing, especially being a Star Trek fan. I'm as much a Star Trek fan as I am a Star Wars fan. And what they did is they replicated the uh, sets of The Next Generation and brought visitors through them on their way to a movie ride. It was just amazing. What they did is they would get you lined up for this movie ride, and then they would uh, darken the whole room to a pitch black level. They'd shoot really cold air on you to get you all tingly. And then when the lights came back up, you were on the transporter pad, and there's a guy there in uniform who brings you up to the bridge, and everything was just replicated beautifully. The hallways, the the turbo lift, the uh, bridge of the Enterprise, and then from the bridge you get on the movie ride and then end everything. It was just exceptionally well done. The actors that were there were terrific. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. It closed down, unfortunately, probably about 10 years ago now, uh, but it was just exceptionally well done and a great way to immerse fans in something like this. Uh, While you're online, they had uh, screen-worn uniforms and props to look at, so it was a lot of things to see there just beyond the uh, movie ride. Uh, These pictures are kind of fuzzy because I took them back in 1998 when I went to the uh, experience when I was in Las Vegas for a trade show at my old job. And this was my first digital camera. It was a Kodak DC120. It was like the first megapixel camera and I was taking it everywhere I went at that point, but I didn't have that much room on the memory cards. I didn't take all that many pictures. What was also neat about it is that they recreated the uh, Deep Space Nine promenade. They had a two-level promenade, I believe, including Quark's Bar, uh, which was all very much accurate to what you remembered it looking like on screen. And at the time that I went to the Star Trek experience, Deep Space Nine was still on the air, so it was really fun to be in the set of, of the TV show that I was watching Uh, at the time. So really cool stuff. And my pick of the week this week is a video that somebody uploaded to YouTube of the entire uh, ride experience, at least insofar as what you've experienced as a guest with the actors. So you can see uh, these beautiful sets they created for this. And these sets were things that you would walk through. So they weren't, uh, you know, half created things where the camera's on the other side. The bridge of the Enterprise was fully uh, realized as a circular thing. The hallways were all there. It was just really cool. And it's a shame that it's not here anymore for people to enjoy it. But maybe this resurgence in Star Trek might bring it back again. But it was really well done. And you can watch this 10-minute video and get a real feel for uh, what this experience was like. And it was just kind of odd to have such a theme park kind of experience in Las Vegas. Because it really belonged, I think, in like Universal Studios or maybe one of the Disney parks at the time. But it ended up at the Hilton of all places. And it was just a really cool thing that you should check out. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question comes in via Twitter from Dr. Phoebes. And he's curious about 
upload frequency and whether or not uploading to YouTube too frequently could result in a diminishing return for creators. And I would say this really depends on where your audience is coming from. And I'm in a really weird place because I have 230,000 plus subscribers, but those subscribers only make up about 20% of my overall views. And the reason why I do this weekly wrap-up video every week is so that I can connect with you, the viewers, because there aren't many other opportunities through uh, what I do normally to do that. And this is why I really enjoy this video very much and sometimes doing the premiere so I can chat with you all in real time as these come out. And what I found in my experience is that, yes, there is a diminishing return to uploading too frequently. If I do two uploads or more in a day, uh, viewers are just completely overloaded and don't know where to start. So I try to do only one upload a day. Generally, I'm doing an upload every other day. And I'm keeping track of this with the real-time chart in the YouTube studio. This is a really critical tool because it helps me figure out when a video has run its course with subscribers so that I can upload the next one. And the reason is, is that I want to make sure that if a video is doing well with subscribers, we don't uh, direct people in a new direction before that other video has run its course. Because the more watch time that you can build up early in a video's life, the better you're going to do in search and algorithmic recommendation down the road. And my bread and butter here is based on search and algorithm because that's about 80% of my overall traffic are people that are not subscribers to the channel and probably never will be, but they're researching a product and want more information about it. And here I am with that info. Uh, So that's why I really keep an eye on this. So what'll happen here is as a video gets uploaded, we get a ton of subscriber views and then they usually fizzle out after 48 hours, sometimes sooner, but generally it's about two days. And what I'll do at the end of that two day cycle is upload the next video. But you might see me uploading a video the day after the one that just went up, and that's because that other video didn't do well at all. It had dropped really quickly and fizzled out faster than I would have hoped it would, and then I'll put the next one up to keep people engaged and watching. So that's generally what I follow here. And what's interesting is if you look down at my other top videos of the last 48 hours, most of these are older videos, and most of the views of these videos are coming from non-subscribers. So you can see Uh, even one here that I did four years ago on Chromebooks. Uh, This one kind of tanked initially, but as Chromebooks got more uh, out into the consumer space and people were looking into them more frequently, uh, searches increased, and as a result, this video became more of a recommended thing to people, and it's still getting watched today. It's one of my top-earning videos of the last two years, believe it or not, and this is why if you really develop a strategy that's focused on engaging your subscribers but also on search and algorithm, you can get a lot of life out of your content and earn a living like I am now doing this. It's just a matter of trying to figure out what people are looking for and providing content that answers questions for what people are looking for. And this is why we don't get into the technical weeds all that often on this channel because most of who I'm trying to reach here are general consumers trying to get some basic information about a laptop they're trying to buy, for example. And this is why I do that because Uh, There are certainly more people out there searching for this information that are not finding what they're looking for. And if you're able to provide that information, your videos can live a long time and continue earning for you over a long period of time as well. And on the Facebook page, Eric Brunhammer wrote in looking for a good solution for note-taking on the go. Uh, He's talking about working in a busy retail environment and what would I choose for that. And it's hard to say without knowing whether you're sitting or standing throughout the day, but I have been very happy with the experience of taking notes with my iPad. 
I've got the iPad Pro here, but now you can do this on even the low-end iPads with a few of the alternative pencils we looked at recently. Uh, so here's an example of like a meeting that I'm about to go to, right? So I've got an agenda here that I was able to scan in uh, with my phone, and because all of my iCloud notes are synchronized together, uh, when I scan it with the phone and put it into a note, it's immediately on the iPad as well. And of course, you can scan documents with the iPad if you wish. What I love about this is that I can mark up PDF documents just by taking my pen out, and I can leave notes about things that I want to uh, maybe bring up at the meeting or something. And I can do all this markup here. When I click Done, this will get embedded into the PDF. I could even email this marked up PDF to somebody as well, and it's sitting right within the note. I can drop down here and take notes with the uh, pencil in writing. And I found for me that I retain information better if I write it down versus type it. So I'm often taking uh, handwritten notes when I'm at a meeting. But I also have the keyboard cover here and can integrate uh, regular typed out notes if I have a lot of text that I want to input uh, in the course of one of those meetings as well. So you can mix all these different things together. Uh, Adding additional documents is pretty easy too. They've got a great document scanner here. So I can hit the the, uh, photo button here, go to scan documents. And again, I can do this on the phone or on the iPad. I just point it at the document here. It'll recognize it and get it all straightened out. I can click save here. And now that I've got uh, this document scanned in, I can also take my pen out and start marking things up and changing colors and stuff or whatever. So it's a really good note-taking feature. The synchronization works really well. And because I have Macs as well, everything just kind of syncs up with my computers and my phones and my tablets. And I found it to be a really good solution. And again, you don't need the Pro anymore to do that. Uh, We looked at the Adenit Note the other day. Uh, This even works on those $250 iPads you can still find at many major retailers. And it works just as well for note-taking as the original Apple Pencil does. Uh, So there's a lot of affordable solutions now. Uh, We're going to be getting in the new 7th generation iPad very shortly, which is their new entry level. I think with the keyboard, you can get in the door under 500 bucks with that. Uh, You could pair up one of these cheaper pens with it as well and get a really good note-taking experience. I was using Evernote before, but it got too expensive. The cost of Evernote went up significantly, and I just didn't see the value of continuing to pay that. And I was already paying for the iCloud synchronization thing that I've been using for my uh, family's backups and photos and everything. So I've got two terabytes of storage with iCloud. Uh, These notes are part of that. Uh, They're not using a lot at all. In fact, I think most folks could probably uh, do all the note-taking on a free iCloud account. It just seems to work really well, very seamlessly. And I can, again, use my phone to scan documents in the middle of a meeting without having my big iPad getting held up in the air. I've just found it to be a really good note-taking solution. So this is going to also be the topic of our Q&A for you this week because I have found an Apple solution that works well for me. But I'd love to hear about some non-Apple solutions you might be using that might help Eric out. Perhaps Microsoft OneNote is something to consider as well. I haven't used it just because I've been mostly in the Mac ecosystem for work, but I'd love to hear what you all are using down in the comments below. Now, as some of you know, I was doing some sponsored videos for Synology where I was talking about their various backup solutions, and XXGG here is wondering uh, what I am actually using in my home environment. And the truth is, I'm actually using Synology's backup solutions for the most part. So let me walk through some of what I'm doing to back up my important data here at the house. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is what I use for things that I'm currently working on. Uh, So when I've got a project in motion, whether it's for the channel or some of the other stuff that I do, I'm typically storing those files in Dropbox. 
and I keep them in Dropbox primarily because I work across a number of different computers and devices and I'm able to pull up those documents wherever I might be and on whatever device I might be using at the time. So when I've got a current project, Dropbox is what I use. It's backing itself up, of course, automatically. They do have some incremental backups going on, uh, so that's part of the strategy. I'm also, of course, a very heavy user of Google Drive and uh, the Google Docs, so everything we do here on the channel for uh, prepping reviews and whatnot is all done inside of Google Docs and Google Spreadsheets, and that, of course, is something that all lives on Google servers. But when I'm done uh, with a particular project, uh, we move over to archiving things on my Synology drive. And what I'm using is a combination of two of their backup strategies. So the first one is Hyper Backup, uh, which I covered in detail in a few videos that I'll add to the master playlist. And you can see here, I'm doing about uh, 2.6 terabytes or 2.3 terabytes worth of data right now. And you can see that right now my backup here is suspended. So this question was actually a very good reminder that I've got to go and fix this thing. So what I've been doing with Hyper Backup is backing up everything onto an external drive, but I've exceeded the capacity of the drive that I had attached to my Synology drive, so I need to uh, get a larger backup drive. And what I used to do was kind of rotate them out, and I need to start doing that again. That's the one thing Hyper Backup doesn't do very well is drive rotation. So each of these backup jobs gets kind of paired up with a specific drive. So you have to pause one job on that external drive that you're taking out, and then start the job on the drive that you're putting in. And it was just a bit cumbersome to have to manage multiple backups uh, for essentially the same thing. And if I wanted to add a new folder or something, I had to remember to go into each of the jobs and restore that. Uh, so it's the one thing Hyper Backup doesn't do very well right now is drive rotation, physical drive rotation, which is something that I recommend people do, which is take a backup, bring it home, and have another one at the office, and then swap them out the next day. Not as easy with Hyper Backup. It's possible just not as easy as it should be. Uh, so what I've been doing is uh, S3 backups, partly because I work at home now and I don't have any place to go with my drives if I wanted to go drop them off somewhere. Uh, so I take my most important files and I have Hyper Backup include uh, those files in a separate S3 backup. And this runs every night. I'm storing about 470 gigabytes up in the S3 server of some very critical files. And what Hyper Backup does on both cloud and on external drives is keeps uh, versions of files. So I have it running with the Smart Recycle here, uh, which means that it will retain, I think, pretty much a, each backup for about a month. It will retain a version from each backup. So if I change a file five times, I will have five different increments of that file change up on Hyper Backup that I can go back to if I screw up a document or something or screw up a video. Uh, so that's really helpful to have. And then it keeps... Uh, over longer periods of time, like a backup every month or two, and you can set the duration that you want to do that. So right now I've got it set to keep at least 250, or at most 256 versions of a file, and you can really adjust and customize this to your heart's content. And I have uh, all of this in my Hyper Backup tutorial video, so you can learn how it all works. Um, but it really has been helpful and gives me some peace of mind to know that even when my other backup is uh, filled up, I know that something is getting backed up every night to S3. Now, another feature of the Synology I'm using is Glacier Backup. And Glacier is a storage service from Amazon that costs significantly less than S3. And it's designed for files that don't change all that often or at all. 
Uh, so what I'm using Glacier for is my backup of the YouTube channel. So we back up every video onto our Synology drive after it's uploaded. That includes the video, the metadata, all the description stuff, the thumbnail. It all goes into our Synology. And then every night, every new video gets tossed up to Glacier. And because those files never change, I don't need increments of them. And it's significantly less expensive to store them on Glacier. And Glacier Backup within the Synology device is a different app. It's not as robust as Hyper Backup, but again, for this kind of backup, I don't need robustness. I just need to have it back up every new file. And I'm storing about uh, almost a terabyte there, 782 gigabytes, but it's not costing me all that much. So if we look at my uh, S3 bill that comes in every month here, uh, the Glacier component of that bill is $3.38. And I have a few other things that I've stored up on Glacier separately, which is why I've got more on the bill than I do uh, inside of my Synology backup there. And you can see the cost here of what I'm paying on S3. Uh, what I might do, though, is I might start looking at other cloud services that cost a little bit less for storage and maybe redo my entire uh, off-site backup with something that's more affordable. So I am using Google Drive quite a bit. And I was considering maybe going up to their next level of service that costs a little bit more, but gives me a lot more storage that could easily accommodate uh, what my uh, backups require. And you can see here, there's a bunch of other services that Hyper Backup supports. Uh, so I can maybe hunt around here, maybe try to find a better price from one of these other services and maybe gain a little bit more that I can use separately in a more flexible way. But that's one of the things that I like about Hyper Backup is that it does support a lot of different backup destinations and it's really flexible. I just wish my upload speed was faster so I could send those backups off-site a lot quicker because if I do switch from one provider to another, I've got to push that whole couple hundred gigabytes back up again. It'll take a couple of days probably at my very slow upload speed. So hopefully this was helpful in talking about how I back things up. And if I make any changes, I will definitely do another video to let you know what I'm going to do. So this week on the channel, we've got a bunch of things that I want to get to. Uh, the first is something I already shot, which is an update on the Blink security cameras. I reviewed them about two years ago. I'm still using them now. In fact, I just picked up their new X-T2 camera from Amazon the other day. Uh, so I'll tell you about that new camera and what it can do and just how I'm using the system two years after my initial review. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, these are very affordable security cameras with no monthly fee. And the no monthly fee thing is what won me over. Uh, we're also going to take a look at that Minix device we unboxed on the Extras channel with the integrated storage. So look out for that. That's going to be a fun one. we got a lot of different things to plug it into. And then we're going to have another dispatch probably Friday night or Saturday uh, because I'm heading into New York City for Pepcom's holiday show where we see a bunch of stuff that's going to be released this fall for the holiday shoppers out there. And this is one of the best shows of the year that I go to because it helps uh, get, our, get us going for the busiest time of year here on the channel, which is the holiday shopping season. So we'll have a dispatch from there and hopefully we'll get a lot of the stuff we see at that show in for review. And yes, the iPhone Pro is out or will be out on Friday, I bought one. And the reason is, is that I use the camera on my iPhone quite a bit. And some of the improvements to the camera here are enough to 
make me want to get one for some of the things that I shoot here on the channel, uh, specifically the uh, wide-angle lens and a few of the other features related to the camera that I was intrigued with. So I did order one. I'll be trading in my old phone uh, to reduce some of, the, some of the cost of this thing, but uh, we'll have a review of that sometime over the weekend if it does come in when it's supposed to come in, which is on Friday. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution via our donor box page. We're also supporting the new YouTube membership program where we have two of our lower tiers available there. So check it out if you want to do that. We support every way you want to support the channel. Uh, we also have our ongoing relationship with Plex where if you sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small commission for that. We get a larger commission if you buy a Plex Pass or gift it to somebody else. We have other channels you can check me out on, including my Extras channel for unboxings and supplementary content. We have my podcast, which you can find at lon.tv slash podcast, where we have audio versions of this show available. We have the Snippets channel, which you can find at lon.tv slash snippets for uh, portions of this show that are more search-friendly. And then we have my live streams at lon.tv slash live streams, where you can see all of my prior live stuff, which I do from time to time. So check that out. If you want to uh, get notified every time we do something, you can click on the bell and you'll get notified whenever we upload something or go live. We also have other ways to engage with the channel. My very infrequent email list. I did send out a couple of emails from the IFA show, uh, but those don't go out too often. We have the Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook, but we also have the Facebook group at lon.tv slash Facebook group that's got a ton of people in there now, over 700, and we get a lot of great uh, discussions going on in there, and it's a great way to have all of you connect with each other as well, because YouTube's comment thing doesn't always lend itself to good community interaction, Uh, so this is a great way to uh, connect with other fans of the channel. And then, of course, we have the store at lon.tv slash store, where you can find things that I previously reviewed here on the channel and I'm now getting rid of, And if you want to get notified every time I add something to the store, you can go to lon.tv slash store alert. And my office is getting messy again, which means it's time to put up a whole another batch of stuff. So be on the lookout. Uh, There are some things still up there. If you're finding you don't like the price, email me with an offer. If I don't respond, send it again because sometimes things get buried. I am interested in getting rid of as much of this stuff as possible because we have to make room for more stuff that comes in. It just never stops. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Thank you all for your continued viewership of this video and all of the other ones that I put up. I greatly appreciate that and all the feedback you provide. I'm looking forward to getting back to a normal week here after the Germany trip. I got a cold after I got back. I've been like just dead the whole week here. So I'm really eager to get my energy back and uh, start getting more content up for you all. So stay tuned. Much more to come. And until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Chris Allegretta, Tom Albrecht, Mike Talbert, Brian Parker and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month.
Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.